Hey, this is Brent Jensen. You're listening to No Sleep Till Sudbury, the show where we talk about the music that makes your skin vibrate. And today I welcome Juno-winning songwriter, broadcaster, and former original Much Music VJ, Mr. Christopher Ward, to the show. Christopher, how are you, sir? Brent, I am excellent. Thank you so much for having me, and I just love the premise of this show. Oh, thank you so much. I appreciate that. It's it's a pleasure for me to have you on. I've recently hosted two of your colleagues on the show. As a matter of fact, one former, one current. Eric M. Uh, has been on the show in the last oh. couple of months. And, and Tom Jokic, your uh, partner in crime, has also been I, on. I'm going to have to know what their favorite songs were, but only after we've talked about mine. So. <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> so Christopher I was also uh, a big much music fan as a kid so this is a pleasure for me I really appreciate your time today thank you oh it's, it's my pleasure truly Brad so I, I ruined your childhood is that what you're going to tell me because I've heard that before you, you did you ruined my teenage years I was kind of hoping that <laughs> we could do some therapy today <laughs> <laughs> You, uh, you're a man of many talents and achievements, Christopher. You're also, this is pretty cool, you're recognized as being Canada's very first VJ. Now, before Much Music launched, you hosted an all-night video program. It was called City Limits on City TV in Toronto. Yeah. That aired on uh, the weekends. It was uh, on from midnight till 6 a.m. And in addition to playing videos of the time, you also hosted guests. And one of those guests was Mike Myers. And he did the Wayne's World skit on your show long before it was made popular on Saturday Night Live. Is that right? Yeah. Well, Mike and I had been in the Second City Touring Company together. And oh. so, um, yeah. And we used to do scenes where he played the Wayne character on stage as part of the improv set um, with the touring company. So when I got the show, I was like, hey, man, you got to come down and do Wayne. And he's like, yeah, no problem. So we made Wayne into my cousin. Ah. who would come and just sort of create mayhem and, you know, just show up at the show. And there was, as I recall, there was some, some guilty reason, like he bailed me out of a fight or something. And that's why I had to let him on the show. I, I don't really remember, <laughs> but you know, okay. The premise was thin. I'm going to grant you that, <laughs> but we had fun. <laughs> that's great. Yeah. So, you know, in addition to that, in a lot of ways, you were, in fact, you know, a primary architect of what much music would later come to be known as, I think. Yeah, I, I can assure you I did not feel that at the time. It was just, you know, a, a job. It was a great opportunity and it was a lot of fun. But, I mean, the way that much unfolded, it was just so rapid fire. Mm -hmm. And as you can imagine, every day just completely turned over into the next and you, you really didn't have a lot of time to contemplate your stature or the significance of what you were doing. You just had to get up and do it. I, I the analogy I always make is, is, you know, like a relief pitcher, mm -hmm. you know, maybe wins a few good ones, but then gets his butt kicked and still has to come back the next day and, you know, do it again. Yeah. Yeah. Well, a lot of this stuff gets talked about in the uh, book that you authored in 2016 called, is this live? And I love this book. Mike Myers actually writes the foreword for it. Thank you. And uh, it's a great read because it's it's all the things that were going on behind the scenes at Much Music in its heyday. Well, I think the, for me, the fun thing was being able to reconnect with all the people that I worked with. Mm -hmm. And mercifully, most of them are still alive with a couple of notable exceptions. Mm -hmm. uh, John Martin, who was sort of one of the principal architects along with Moses. And of course, Dan Gallagher was one of the great on-air people in the early days at mm -hmm. Much. But aside from that, they're all around, and they all have stories to tell, 
and I guess entrusted me with the, you know, the telling of the tale because I had been their colleague for, for such a long time. And um, I hope that it was lovingly, affectionately told. It was, it was meant to reflect, you know, the spirit of the times, which was pretty crazy, but, you know, a, a lot of fun. Oh, it's a fantastic book. There's so much great, oh, so much great content in there. And and one thing that I particularly loved is what Laurie Brown had to say about David Bowie being perpetually (laughs) curious. And isn't that great that he, I'm a huge Bowie fan, so it was fantastic for me to be able to read this. He was interested in, in what was on her mind and what she was thinking during their conversations and how engaged he was all the time. Well, and he asked once he had been interviewed by her once, whenever he came back, and there were numerous times, mm-hmm. he asked specifically for her to do the interview, which is a great honor for her as an as a, um, interviewer. And she, and she, of course, did a tremendous job. She, she's yeah. a wonderful talent. Yeah, yeah. Well, there, there's also that bit about him doing press in the U.S. and much music happened to have a camera <laughs> right. there. And he looked into the camera and said, Hi, Lori. <laughs> <laughs> I know, she said... She said, she said that it made my year. Oh, or yeah. Made my life. You know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's just incredible. Yeah, unexpected and wonderful. But, you know, the book is full of great stuff like that. You know, I was also very interested in chapter 16, which kind of goes the other way. <laughs> it's called The Worst Interviews. <laughs> yeah. I loved reading that. They happen. As much as you don't want to, you know, know that that sort of stuff goes on, it's fascinating that it actually does. And I thought you did a really good job of recounting the cringe worthiness of some of those moments. And I was surprised by some of the people who initiated them, actually. Well, I mean, they happened. So, you know, I think all these years later, the statute of limitations as far as um, revealing artists for who they really are is is long since passed. So Mm. I, I wasn't too reluctant there. I mean, you don't want to do it with a vengeful tone because who cares at this point? It's that many years later, you know? Exactly. It's just, it was just part of an overview of what the gig was like because, yeah, when people watch their favorite artists being interviewed, they're excited and, you know, they take a lot of what they say as gospel. But when you're sitting there in a chair, you know, beside Mariah Carey or whoever, it's like you sometimes see some of the most bratty human behavior that you can imagine. <laughs> and think, really? Is this really necessary? Yeah. Um, but some of it, you know, I'm, I would think that, that some of the artists might have gained a little perspective in the intervening years and probably would be quite amused by this, you know, portrait of themselves at the time. I mean, think about the the, the one that I, sticks in my mind. That, you know, they weren't the biggest artists by any means, but the two Reed brothers mm-hmm. who made up the Jesus and Mary chain arrived fresh from having just a knockdown, drag them out brotherly brawl on Queen Street oh. because one of them looked in the window of a comic book store and thought comics were cool and the other one did not. <laughs> and they had the, the streetcar street driver had to stop and haul them off the tracks so that he could continue his passage down Queen. And then the poor guy from the record label had to drag them into much music, which they did not want to do, oh. and sit down with me. And, you know, it's like, that's a recipe for disaster. Oh, God, yeah. Well, but you know what? It, it also speaks to your professionalism, Christopher, because it, a lot of that stuff went unnoticed by viewers, I imagine. Yeah, except for the Gene Simmons stuff. You couldn't help but notice that crap. <laughs> I think he's in his class all his own. He's, <laughs> yes. 
He's, he's a, he, <laughs> Sadly. He but you know, don't tell Tom Jokic that because... Oh, I know. <laughs> he, he loves Kiss. I, I don't think he loves Kiss antics at all, by any means. But no. Just, Tom, just excuse me, buddy. He certainly doesn't, but he um, he was on the show, as I said, and we talked about Kiss, and Kiss is kind of, it can be very embarrassing to be a Kiss fan. I hate to say that, because as a kid, I mean, <laughs> I, they, they get you when you're when you're young and when you're weak. They really do, you know? <laughs> <laughs> I love that idea. They, uh, like the Catholic Church, right? <laughs> <laughs> There's some similarities there. <laughs> Yeah, I think it was eight years old, and it was just, I grew up in a small town, and the stronger sensations were there with Kiss, you know, the loud music and the cartoon-like antics and, and all the rest of it. I fell for it, and I'm sure Tom, I think, you know, did the same thing. But as you get older and you, you know, gain perspective and look back on that, you think, geez, man. Well, it's like, you know, a lot of metal bands were all about the show and i mean around alice cooper i mean in those days i remember seeing alice really early in his career mm -hmm. and um and just thinking my god this is the weirdest thing i've ever seen on stage but being completely fascinated by it not sitting there and going well is this a good song or is this well written it's like no i wasn't thinking about that it's just the pure raw spectacle of it all yeah on your famous lost words podcast actually your last episode had to do with uh, Gene Simmons and Paul Stanley. And it was funny because I, I listened to that and uh, I was I was saying to Tom, you know, I don't listen to a lot of podcasts, but I listen to that one. I I, I love it just because you guys dig deep into the vaults and you never know who Thanks. you're going to hear. Well, that's, that's Tom. He's the archivist, as you know, and has an incredible amount of patience digging through an enormous, rich archive of stuff. I mean, to have that to draw on is amazing. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, the banter between you guys is always pretty funny. But with the Kiss episode, it was particularly funny because you are not a Kiss fan whatsoever. And he is an ardent <laughs> Kiss fan. And so, yeah. you know, in between that, the interviews with both Gene and Paul play. And I listened to that. And it wasn't terribly offensive. But then I read, you know, a part in your book about Gene saying to Lori Brown how he would like her to lick the bottoms of his boots and that sort of thing. And it's just like, good Lord, man. <laughs> Yeah. Well, okay. There's really nothing more to be said. <laughs> <laughs> right. So Tom actually asked me to ask you, Christopher, about uh, a story that you have about Robert Plant and Alana Miles at Wolfgang Puck's restaurant. <laughs> yeah. Well, um, Alana was opening up for Robert on tour in the United States. Mm -hmm. And Alana and I had been a couple for many, many years. Mm -hmm. But we had broken up, you know, in the, during the making of the record, conveniently enough. I mean, it's a true rock and roll moment, right? Mm -hmm. um, but we actually, the thing with she and I was kind of different. Is we actually got along better as a result. Uh, we just, you know, I just ended up picking her up on the way to work as opposed to leaving from the same apartment. It was like everything else just <laughs> continued as was, yeah. which was great. So, you know, when she became Robert Plant's girlfriend, I mean, I was delighted for her. It, you know, kept her, kept her hands busy and, uh, you know, she had, she had a good time. Mm-hmm. So he asked me and, and a group of my friends, he, he was like, oh, bring your friends. Kind of, it was an open invitation to go to Spago, which at the time was you know, Wolfgang Puck's very first restaurant in West Hollywood and his signature restaurant and, and you know, a very sort of hip place to go. Mm -hmm. So I thought, oh, this would be great, you know. So we went and I had a few friends with me, uh, including Dave Tyson, who was Atlanta's producer. Mm -hmm. And um, Mike Myers was, was along as well. And um, having dinner with Robert Plant in a, you know, 
the chic place like that is I would imagine it'd be kind of like dining with Henry the eighth. Okay. It was like, you know, more wine for all my rock and roll <laughs> friends and, you know, flagons of this and trays of that. And, you know, yeah. and he's just so larger than life, but he's delightful about it. And he's very self-aware and he's just a funny and sweet guy and, and, you know, he knows he's this legendary character and that he has to live up to that. And he does it in space. And it was, it was a fantastic evening and lots of laughs. It was capped off with Wolfgang Puck obsequiously bringing out pizza that was custom made in the shape of a double neck guitar. Oh, that's great. Yeah. You got to like that, huh? Yeah. Um, so that was great. And then at the end of the dinner, you know, Lana and Robert were, swanning around Spago, talking to people at various tables and things. Mm -hmm. While Mike and Dave and I went out to the valley parking, we were looking at each other and going, wow, that was a pretty memorable night. And actually during the dinner at one point, Mike looked over at me and mimed, like making notes, <laughs> like he's going to use it, <laughs> which I have no doubt he did. <laughs> um, probably in Wayne's World too. But... Um, so we're standing there. This is this is sort of the capper to the stories. We're standing outside, you know, marveling at this experience. And who comes out but Don Rickles and his wife? And he's going, "Hey, honey, do you know who that was? The guy with the broad, you know, and the long hair. Yeah, that was Led Zeppelin. We was having dinner with. Hey, honey, what do you think, honey? That was Led Zeppelin. We're just standing there going, "Can the weird get any weirder?" That is so great. Oh, but the best part, the button on the story is that uh, Robert stuck me with the bill. Ah. <gasps> Are you kidding? Yeah. No, no. <laughs> oh. that's, what, that's what rock stars do, Brent. So don't dine with them. That's all I can say, man. Good yeah. Lord, really? I'm I'm surprised to hear that. It was worth it, though. A story like this, it's, it's worth many times the cost of the meal. <laughs> and, the, and the flagons of wine for all my rock and roll friends. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> so one other thing I wanted to talk to you about is... Uh, your interview with uh, George Harrison, and yeah. you talk about it a little bit in the book. The fact that he, he kind of made a, a comment about Paul McCartney saying, well, he's run out of good ideas. And I, I was actually really surprised to hear that from, from George Harrison. He's an interesting guy, obviously. Yeah. He um, is very genteel, mm -hmm. soft-spoken, very sincere, I mean, when he met people, he would stop and really look them in the eye and really listen to what they said. And I mean, he's just sort of everything you would hope that he would be. George also does not suffer fools gladly. I mean, if you go back to his history of interviews and things, mm -hmm. you know, he has a very sharp tongue and a, just a wicked sense of humor. If you think right back to like Hard Day's Night and, you know, all those scenes that were kind of semi-improvised and stuff. I mean, George is performances in, in that movie are, are really, really funny. They stand up. So it was, a, it was a kind of a comedic jab on his part. What had happened was that I had read, I think a couple of weeks earlier, that McCartney was considering doing an album of other songs, including John Lennon's songs, mm -hmm. like Beautiful Boy. And I just thought, well, I'll mention this to George because maybe he'll know something about it, you know? And he looked at him and he went, Paul, <laughs> Really? And he's paused and sort of looked away and went, well, I guess he doesn't have any good ones of his own. <laughs> and I was so taken aback by this. I think I said something like, well, now, now we have that on record. Or, yeah, you know. yeah, yeah. And, uh, and then, he, then he looked at me and went, well, it's true, you know. 
It's just so, <laughs> so off the cuff. <laughs> but, you know, I mean, those guys knew how to throw darts at one another. Let's face it. Oh, you know, yeah. Over the years. Yeah. That was pretty mild stuff compared to the exchanges that, well, largely John Lennon had with McCartney. You know, how do you sleep? I mean, come on. <laughs> oh, I know. Yeah. It was intense for a little while. I was pretty familiar with, you know, John and Paul's public spats, but I just, I didn't know that George was actually involved in that. And when I read that in your book, it just, again, I, the book is fascinating in terms of, you know, the behind the scenes stuff that happened, but you talk about during commercial breaks and it's not just you, it's Erica M and Master T and JD Roberts talking about dusting uh, Mariah Carey's cleavage because it was, it was, it was, it, was, it appeared to be wet. <laughs> Yeah, I mercifully was absent that day. <laughs> but, <laughs> yeah, I mean, it is interesting in the case of T, like the, the Madonna interview, which was, again, a very coveted interview, just as the George Harrison one was. It was the one that everyone wanted. Mm -hmm. And they chose they chose uh, Tony to do it. And I think they made a great choice because he just was so chill. And it's like he welcomed her into his space was kind of how it felt. Mm hmm. And she's not used to kind of operating on somebody else's territory. You could kind of feel that. Mm -hmm. And she settles in over the course of the interview. And then I think ends up having a very, very fun exchange with Tony, particularly when she's teaching him how to do yoga. Yes. Yeah. But he gave those insights as to what it was like seeing her be uncomfortable and, you know, trying to find her space within that moment. Yeah. And, and, you know, and he did a fantastic job. Yeah. And he caps that story by saying, I think the reason why it worked was because I wasn't a very big Madonna fan at all. Well, yeah. I mean, we've all had that experience where you interview somebody who means so much so many people that you feel the weight of expectation mm -hmm. you know you got to bring it that day you have to honor the connection that that artist has made with their fans and you, you got to bring something that those people want to know you got to extract something from the artist so you know you can rely on research a lot of the time for me yeah i tried to rely on my own natural curiosity mm -hmm. And just ask the things that I wanted to know. But I was also aware that you had to ask the things that the fans wanted. And it was a lot harder challenge if it was an artist that you weren't invested in personally. You know, I, I was saying to Erica, there is so much to consider. And so many people underestimate the difficulty in what you guys did. It was live national television. You were sitting in front of, you know, superstars. And it must have been so potentially unnerving sometimes. I mean, preparation obviously is super, super important and you guys were very prepared. I know that, but hats off to you. Well, thank you. Um, you know, it's like I said earlier, it, it all happens so fast that you don't have time to get precious about it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You, and you're, but you're right. The first premise in that is that research can save your bacon. Oh yeah. And the more, the more, you know, the more comfortably you can sort of navigate through a potentially difficult interview. Mm -hmm. um, and, and let's face it, um, when you know a lot about an artist, you gain their respect in yes. the moment. Yeah. Whereas if you're obviously just surfacing and, you know, somebody's handed you notes 10 minutes before the cameras roll, they know, they can tell. Mm -hmm. And I mean, I've been in that situation where people interview me and it's kind of like what you end up doing is you end up interviewing yourself. Um, <laughs> 
to get through the moment. But um, yeah, you know, I don't think too is that this was still kind of new for the artists as well. Mm-hmm. Because if you think not that many years before much music started, I mean, there was Rolling Stone magazine, and that was like you know insight into the artists, and then all the various other you know, sort of rock mags, the Crawdaddies and the New Music Express and those those kind of things. Mm-hmm. So you had those sources. But in terms of seeing your favorite act, I mean, it was like Wolfman Jack show, right? Midnight Special. And the other one, uh, Rock Concert with Don Kirshner. You remember that one? Yeah. Oh, yeah. 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 The first time I saw Bon Jovi was in a small club in New Jersey for him. <laughs> <laughs> it was just... He was just so unrock and roll. It was just like, what is that guy doing? I know it's so I mean, at least bizarre. Wolfman, at least Wolfman Jack brought the attitude, you know. Yeah. <laughs> but um, yeah, but before that, I mean, until that, I mean, really think like the new music era, and of course the beginning of MTV in the U.S. Mm-hmm. You know, then suddenly interviewers from these networks were you know, climbing on board the tour bus and going backstage and, and really kind of stirring it up and getting more involved in the artist's careers. And some artists took to it and some didn't. Yeah. Um, but even the nature of that, the long live interview, I mean, sure, Robert Plant had been there before, but there were a lot of artists for whom that was a new experience. And they weren't all completely comfortable with it, to be honest. No. And again, going back to your book, there's a lot of, you know, stories about people like Slash from Guns N' Roses, for example, who actually vomited during an interview. <laughs> so you guys saw it all. I mean, as you, as you will, right? <laughs> <laughs> of course. <laughs> That's very common. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, again, I mean, you guys had to be prepared for anything and everything. So, you know, off the top of your head, Christopher, what is, you know, in talking about this, what are some of the experiences now that you're going through in your head and thinking, wow, like that was, you know, fulfilling or, oh my God, that was scary? Well, the George Harrison one was, as, as I have described it before, the, the interview that I was preparing for my entire adult life, mm-hmm. just because I grew up as such a Beatles fan. Yeah. And so... I couldn't help but be intimidated by the legend. I mean, you know, a real life Beatle walking into the Much Music Studios, that was a serious moment. Oh, yeah. And everyone recognized that. As one of the um, directors said, it was like, you know, the control room or the studio became like a temple in that moment, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, so that one will always, always register for me. There were other ones, interestingly, that registered more for the viewers than for me. Kate Bush is an example because um, although I was an admirer of Kate Bush, I didn't know her music super well. Mm-hmm. Um, I was familiar with the current album that she had out when I interviewed her, Hounds of Love, which is, I think, a beautiful piece of work. And I've come to appreciate her over the years more. Mm-hmm. But at the time, I wasn't a hardcore Kate Bush fan. And it seems like that was the only type of fan they was, was hardcore. Yeah, I mean, people... That was the one interview, I mean, maybe two now, I think, but that one was one of the interviews where people afterwards were like, you talked to Kate Bush, what was it like, man? What did she say? Like, what did she, when, it was, when, the, when the mic was off, like, what did she say? You know, this, this like ham of the garment, you know? I mean, it's like they wanted to touch me because I had touched her. And, wow. and, and Mike Myers, huge fan. You know what question he asked me? What? 
What does she smell like, man? <laughs> Come on, really? <laughs> what does she smell like? <laughs> and I said, is that a call? Good. You know? <laughs> <laughs> That's so great. <laughs> Well, I think also 
our time corresponded with a kind of a new zeitgeist in interview styles. And I, I always point to David Letterman as being the guy who sort of changed the rules in mm. many respects. Yeah. And I, I wouldn't say it was necessarily that it was more about him than about, you know, Cher <laughs> or whoever he was interviewing. Yeah. But um, he, he would not hesitate to go for the joke. Yeah. Yeah, at true. the expense of the interview in the moment, at least to, to my way of thinking. Um, and that that was kind of a, a new style that, that came to dominate. Whereas before that, yeah, like Ron said, you, you really, you were there to help that artist make a connection to their audience. You were a medium in the true sense of the word. That's, that's what I believe. Yeah. You know, that's a great point about Letterman because he, um, you know, oftentimes... It was entertaining in the sense that he would, you know, roll his eyes if somebody said something they didn't like, or he very much, um, you know, made his opinions well known. And, and, you know, you'd watch those shows. And I think that that was the success, really, of of The Late Show, because you'd watch Carson and you'd watch everything else. And it was very cookie cutter and kind of almost uh, homogenized. You know, it was like the questions you'd expect and the answers you'd expect. But then when Letterman interviewed these people, he kind of he did go for the jugular a little bit. But, you know, you have to, I think I do have to go back to have an appreciation of what those guys dealt with because they were dealing with history, as, you know, as well as what had gone before, what was considered acceptable. Somebody, for some reason, sent me a clip of Carson. Well, I'm trying to remember. He was talking with some really, really big actor, but they talked about politics for about 15 minutes. Mm. And it just rolled by uninterrupted. And I sat there marveling because it's it's not what I recollect. I think of Carson with the, the quips and the quick ins and outs and, mm-hmm. you know, and the stand up comedians and all of that. And, and it wasn't that at all. And it was just, uh, yeah, uh-huh. it shows you there were other things going on and we just don't remember. Yeah. Yeah. True. All right. That concludes part one of my chat with Christopher Ward. Tune in next week for the second and final part of our chat to find out what his songs are, and also to hear his very visceral and very insightful interpretation of those songs. This has been No Sleep Till Sudbury with Brent Jensen. Till next time, take good care. Brent Jensen is the best-selling author of No Sleep Till Sudbury, Leftover People, and All My Favorite People Are Broken. All titles available in stores and on Amazon Worldwide.